Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Before we go into it, I just wanted to let you know that the audio on this starts off a little shoddy because um, my mic wasn't working when we started recording, uh, but I eventually fixed it a couple minutes in. And so uh, just hang in there. The audio will get better a few minutes in. And then after that, uh, it's smooth sailing. Today, I have Erwin Gratz, and we're going to talk about the importance of journalism kind of the different ways to be looking at sort of the various journalism that you might see, how to filter out the fluff from the important stories. You know, this is sort of a a response to some of the content that I've seen, uh, you know, people on Twitter talking about how journalism is dead, or some of my own peers in the podcasting sector who are talking about how, well, you don't need to read the news. The news is nonsense. The news is completely pointless. I wanted to respond to that too, because I disagree, 100% disagree. And so I reached out to Erwin Gratz about um, doing an, uh, uh, an episode where I could just kind of have him talk about, you know, the importance of journalism in society. Um, he is the, or he was at one point, the president of the Society of Professional Journalists, and he's still a member. And uh, he's also the morning edition producer and host uh, for Main Public Radio, uh, which is affiliated with uh, NPR, the National Public Radio. And so he's the perfect guy to be talking about this. And so enjoy, and uh, I'll see you on the other side. So. Thank you for doing this. I really, really appreciate it. No problem. Uh, no problem. It's always fun to talk about this stuff. <clears throat> yeah, uh, and, and it's uh, for this podcast specifically. It's a uh, it's a break from the norm because I'm really a cultural podcast, and I and I tend to talk about the arts more than anything. And it's occurring to me that we can't really pursue the art life without a stable democracy. Like it's just and. I, 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 all the, all of these topics, which I didn't think I had anything to do with more and more, I'm just like, I feel like I need to have this discussion. Um, and well, what I'm seeing, uh, and I, I'm just giving this context because I think some of my audience are probably wondering why, why I'm doing this episode. Um, I'm seeing on Twitter and I'm seeing in my own, with my own peers in the podcasting sector, more and more resentment against journalism, uh, traditional journalism, especially. And, I think it, I think it's important that that at least I have this discussion. Uh, otherwise, it'll continue to weigh on me. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I hear you, and and of course there are also lots of places. I mean, the arts often intersect with journalism and with public policy. <clears throat> I mean, it's all kind of part of the grand conversation that we have in the process of self-governing ourselves. Yeah, and um, 100% agree. Um, so I, I found you through the Society of Professional Journalists. Yep. Uh, you're listed as a, on the board of directors as the president. Is that still current? Well, it, not, yes and no. Um, the, the, the Society of Professional Journalists, I'm actually a past national president of the Society of Professional Journalists back in 2004, 2005. We have a supporting foundation, um, and that's the that's the board of which I'm currently president of. But I certainly have been, but I have been the past national president of the society itself. 
which is made up of journalists from all sorts of fields, print, broadcast, online, um, including a, a good contingent of student journalists as well. Um, right. As, as, and, as uh, I can explain, we're the, the nation's oldest and most broad-based journalism organization. And you're also the, you're the morning edition producer for Maine Public Radio? Yes, and actually it's a local host as well. Local host, oh great, perfect. So you're the guy I should be talking to. Yep. <laughs> um, <clears throat> see here. All right, so I wanna start with, um, it's, this is a clap back to a recent podcast I listened to um, from a peer of mine who basically insisted that you could trade up traditional journalism for just reading books, which I disagree with. And I wanted to get your opinion on the matter because while I love reading books and I think people should read books, I love one of my favorite books is The Power Broker and now I'm now reading Bagman, which is the book about Spiro Agnew. Uh, uh, it doesn't take the place of my coronavirus news or, or what's right. going on with the transition. And so. Well, I've always, looked at, I've always looked at books as being a very good foundational source of information. Um, a, they can tell great history. The Power Broker is an excellent example of that. You know, really sets the stage for what to this day remains some of the, uh, uh, some of the, the power dynamics in and around greater New York. Um, so it's it's good from that standpoint, but obviously Carol wrote the Power Broker now some what forty years ago, so obviously that's not going to help you understand uh, the machinations of Bill De Blasio today. So you know it it takes a combination. Some books, of course, are more current than that, but still, it's just in the nature uh, that that I think books are better as a, a foundational source of information than a source of current events, if you will. Can you talk to me about what goes on behind the scenes at uh, a news organization in terms of um, fact checking, how this is done typically? Uh, I am curious about, as I've never been in a newsroom except for a brief visit to, unfortunately, Fox News, <laughs> like t uh, 20 years ago. Um, and so I am curious, like, what that looks like. Um... Obviously, it varies. I mean, you have to remember news organizations run an enormous gambit. I mean, you have the New York Times, you know, which has a newsroom staff of over a thousand people. And then you have uh, our operation at Maine Public, which probably, including our web news producers and all, we may have about 15 people on staff. So... You know, the, 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 the quote unquote fact checking um, is going to look different in those locations. Um, at a very large organization, um, there may actually be staff whose job is to do nothing other than to look over, copy, and check facts. In our case, um, what, we, what we, of course, are trying to do is trying to be as scrupulous as we can in our research. Um, we do run stuff uh, that we produce by an editing crew, which gives it a second set of eyes. Um, and, you know, and, and, and we'll just try to be as thorough as we can be. Uh, nobody, of course, is perfect. But, um, but again, how that happens, again, depends on the organization. Um, I, I wrote a piece once a long time ago now for uh, the Columbia Journalism Review. Did my reporting 
submitted my draft, it was edited, and then I got a call from a fact checker. Again, somebody whose job was just to kind of go through and say, okay, where did you get this piece of information from? Where did you get that from? Where did this quote originate from? And they were, uh, and, and so I was able to tell them where that material came. And in some cases, I'm sure they were able to double check me to make sure that what I had given them was correct. And, you know, it, needless to say, the more accurate we can be, um, the more credibility we're going to have as a journalism organization, any of us. So uh, accuracy remains and fact-checking remains an important part, I think, of any news organization. What, so when, when you get these other sets of eyes on them, what are they doing specifically? Well, we're doing a couple of things. I mean, again, in, in one case, you're looking to make sure that there's not something you recognize that's incorrect, which happens. Um, but a lot of times in our newsroom, we're also looking for style. Um, and, and a lot of times, again, we're in radio. So one of the things about uh, writing news for radio is that people are going to hear it once and it's going to be gone, which places a fairly high priority on uh, being understood the first time because people can't really go back and listen to you again. So clarity becomes important. Um, and, and so a lot of times if you're reading through, if you're the second set of eyes reading through a piece of copy and say, you know, I don't really get this, that's a red flag. Because if they're not getting it, chances are the listener is not going to get it. So we either need to find a different way to say it, or we need to explain something that a lot of times reporters, because they get close to a story, will wind up being comfortable with something, an acronym, uh, a piece of jargon that they understand because they've reported the story, but an outsider, be it somebody else in our newsroom or somebody in the audience, is not going to understand it. And we need to capture those and do something about it so that, again, the audience does not get lost in the story and can follow exactly what it is we're trying to tell them about. One of the big initiatives of the Society of Professional Journalists is, promote, is promoting ethical journalism. Uh, can you discuss with me a little bit about um, how ethical journalism fits into the current media environment? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> um, I mean, I would argue, and of course, and I sat on the Society's Ethics Committee for many, many years and was involved actually in our last uh, rewrite kind of uh, adjustments made to our code of ethics, our model code of ethics about four or five years ago now. And um, I mean, it, again, it's it, news organizations need credibility. We need to be believed. And one of the ways that, that we're believed is if people can, can have faith that what we are doing is ethical, involves good practice, that we're not in some ways cutting corners or we're not failing to um, uh, reach out to all sides of a story that we're supposed to, or that there's some reason to suspect our independence has been compromised. These are the things that um, our code of ethics kind of focuses on. How do you get your information? How do you treat the sources of your information? 
Uh, do you maintain your independence, which can be critical, especially when we're reporting on either government or big business? And then lastly, can are we being sufficiently transparent about what we're doing? Um, all of these factors can come into play when you're deciding on how to behave ethically as a journalist. So, I mean, where that's where it comes in. It comes in as, as an important element of, of credibility, which we which good news organizations have. If you don't have credibility, um, then presumably people are not going to believe you um, and you're going to fail in your mission to better educate the public about what is going on truthfully in their society, in their world, with their government. Um, and we can talk a lot more about kind of what our ethics code describes, but that's, that's I think, is the answer to your question about how it intersects um, with, uh, with news organizations and their, what they are doing. In your opinion, because you seem like a well-rounded journalist, I did a lot of research into some of your work last night in preparation for this, what would you say, what, what is a good journalist? What is a bad journalist? What are some examples of journalism that you think stands out as great examples for today's climate? And yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's a tough one. I, I think, by the way, and, and you know, some people will disagree with this, I think, but I think there's still a lot of good journalism out there. Um, I see it all the time. I see it locally here. We actually have uh, two large newspaper organizations in the state, one of which produces the Portland Press Herald down at the southern end of the state and some other sister publications, another uh, based in Bangor, the Bangor Daily News. Both of them do a bang-up job day in and day out. Uh, they find good stories. They report fairly. They are accurate, dependable sources of news. And... Uh, you know, uh, in addition to that, we have uh, three uh, uh, local television stations in the Portland market um, that do a wonderful job, I think, on a day-to-day -day basis covering stories. Um, needless to say, I think my own, or, own organization, Maine Public Radio, which is a statewide network, I think we do a very good job at what we're at. Um, so there's a lot of good journalism that's still done. Um, and I think that's, you know, I, I still look at a New York Times each and every day. I think they, they do a wonderful job. So do other major newspapers, the Washington Post, Los Angeles Times. Um, in fact, one of the problems I think we face at the moment is, is the fact that because of the business climate for print publications, that we have seen a tremendous shrinkage in daily newspapers in smaller markets across the country. And I think that's too bad um, because I think that is depriving people in those local areas of a vital source of information. And there have been studies that show absolutely conclusively that as you lose that daily news presence in a market, the amount of corruption in government tends to go up. So it's, it's, really, it's really critical. And, and of course, journalism is done in a lot of different forms. So it's interesting when you ask what I think one of the best uh, uh, pieces of journalism work that I, I know of, you mentioned it right at the top. It's Robert Caro's book about Robert Moses, The Power Broker. It's a brilliant piece of journalism. 
Of course, he spent years working on it. It goes into much greater detail than most other journalistic forms would, but nonetheless, it's 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 a marvelous piece of journalism. Um, there's no question, and that's why, of course, it won a Pulitzer Prize. Um, so, um, I, you know, and bad journalism is uh, bad journalism is that which you know you might have trouble finding credible and. And I know in recent years, there's been a lot of talk about Fox um, and increasingly kind of lumped in with them, MSNBC, because in both of those cases, what has happened, not so much in their news product, if you actually listen to them really closely, but in some of their ancillary programs, um, they have decided to take a particular political bent, Fox to the right, MSNBC to the left. For me, and I think for many of my colleagues, it's disquieting. It's not the kind of journalism we're used to. Um, but here's the dirty little secret about the First Amendment to the Constitution, which, among other things, of course, guarantees freedom of the press. When it was conceived in the late 1780s, there was no New York Times. There was no public radio. There was no CBS or NBC or ABC television. There was pamphleteers um, like Thomas Paine, who was writing about independence. Uh, there were old colonial newspapers. Uh, I've looked at one, the Massachusetts Spy, which used to report news in much the same way you might see uh, news on a, on, on a very biased news outlet today, something like a Newsmax, of course, because it was painting a picture of this drive for independence. And that's the journalism, that's the press that the founders were writing to protect. That ability to, in that case, dissent from the British government and promote a certain course of action. Um, so the truth is, when you talk about what the First Amendment protects in journalism, it protects everybody, including the Fox Newses, including the Newsmaxes, including the MSNBCs, you name it. Um, it's all it's all fair game under the First Amendment. Um, so people have to decide for themselves how much credibility to give news sources and which to rely on more perhaps than others. Myself, I prefer organizations that I believe operate to the kinds of professional standards we promote at the Society of Professional Journalists. That means journalism that follows our ethical principles, journalism that presents, <clears throat> excuse me, a more balanced report of uh, daily news events and that tends to shy away from being openly partisan for any reason whatsoever. So the next time somebody says um, journalism isn't what it used to be, I could say, well, going back to... <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, there is that. I mean, you know, it, 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 we have a long history now in the country and some of it when it comes to journalism has been better than others. You know, you go back to the early part of the 20th century and there was a lot of really unethical journalism going on, um, in part because at that time uh, you had uh, a plethora of newspapers competing in large markets and thus fighting desperately for market share in a free market economy and were doing uh, many outrageous things to try to attract readers. Um, in some ways, it kind of is a bit of a mirror to what you see going on today for some of the same reasons. 
Um, you know, if you if you have that kind of really fierce competition um, in in our free market for people's attention, uh, some folks are going to choose to do to try to attract that attention in ways that are less than what we would consider ethical in SPJ. Can I talk to you for a moment about headlines? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, this is also a response to a recent podcast that um, the host and his guests were talking about headlines, and I wanted to continue this uh, through through this episode. Um, I have some headlines that I want to go over with you from various um, outlets. Here's one from this morning. Um, well, I saw it this morning. It's actually from yesterday in the Washington Post. Um, Pete Buttigieg is right. Airports are romantic. <laughs> um, the, thing about, the thing about headlines, and and this this again goes. This is going to touch base with what I was saying a moment ago. You know, all pretty much all journalistic institutions in America, to some degree, even mine, although as public broadcasters, we're a little bit different. Um, But by and large, most of the news media in this country is privately operated, for profit, in a free market. And what that means at, at at the end of the day is that they have to attract a certain audience. Without that, there's no revenue. Without the revenue, there simply is no news organization. My, my favorite um, quote that you'll hear from time to time, politicians who see something in news organizations they don't like, especially in headlines, they'll say, oh, they're just doing that to sell newspapers. And every time they say that, I think to myself, okay, how exactly is that organization supposed to function if it doesn't sell newspapers? And the answer is it won't. So there is a certain amount of, and this is, I think, the right word, there's a certain amount of sensationalism that is built into the system of necessity because of the way the economics work. Um, and whether and, and sensational sometimes can mean, as I think in that headline that you read, um, you know, sometimes it means being cute. Um, sometimes it means being serious. It is why in newspapers, headlines will appear in very large type. It's all about attracting someone's attention long enough to buy the publication, to linger on the website and read it. Um, because if that does not happen in our structure, um, news organization can't exist. Do does the does the wording the wording does wording like this uh, impact the way people might interpret the news? Not just in that particular article, but in the ne- next corresponding article if they click over to it. You know, that's I suppose that's possible. I mean, that's one of the things I guess that any given news organization is going to have to take into account when it decides what it wants to write for a headline. Um, you know, the headline should accurately reflect the content of the story. But again, it's designed. It's not. It's not really designed to be a summary. It's designed to be an attractant, uh, and that's yeah. in some ways that's different. And in a lot of, uh, by the way, in larger newspaper publications, by the way, what they what they often say, um, and I have no reason to doubt them, is that 
you know, the headlines are actually written by editors who have not actually written or reported the story. Um, you know, which means the, the responsibility has been given to people who have a sense of what is going to attract a reader, which may be different than the impression the reporter has come away from a story with. Oh, that's actually, I didn't realize that, but that's interesting. Traditionally, yeah. I believe, and remember, I'm not a newspaper guy, but I think traditionally at most larger publications, it has been copy editors that have been in charge of coming up with headlines or, um, you know, but usually not the reporters. The reporters are usually disconnected from the headlines completely. In, in this city, as you probably are well aware, because you're from here, um, you have to be a credentialed journalist to get your foot into any meeting, uh, event, or what have you. Uh, but uh, there's an increasing uh, number of people who are creating uh, journalistic stories that aren't quote-unquote cred credential journalists. And so I wanted to get your perspective on where credential journalism versus what um, one of my peers calls uh, indie muckracking journalism <laughs> how they kind of fit into the journalism sphere and how each may benefit from one another. Well, first of all, credentialing is, is an interesting area. Um, it's, it's more of a necessity in larger markets or any place where larger numbers of journalists are going to gather simply because of the mechanics of, of doing stuff. But the first amendment, this is one of the interesting things too, about at least, uh, our view in the society about the First Amendment. Uh, journalism is not really solely a function of journalists. The right to a free press is guaranteed to all Americans. Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of the press. Doesn't say freedom of the press as practiced by any particular group. Um, and we have gone to bat um, for authors who have been challenged in court um, as to whether or not they are journalists, because they certainly can be. And in the more modern social media environment, there are lots of other people I would consider journalists um, whose work does not necessarily appear for any particular organization whatsoever. Um, and I, and here's a, I was thinking about this in advance of our talk. In, in New York, it's a superb example of this. There's a, a gentleman by the name of Benjamin Kaback. He's, I believe, an attorney. Still, I think he's in Brooklyn. And about, well, now it's probably close to 20 years ago now, he started an online blog uh, kind of tracking the construction of the Second Avenue subway in New York, which, as an old New Yorker, is a story I known about for a long time and was kind of interested in. So I, I started actually looking at, at his blog. And over the years, uh, in addition to chronicling that effort, he has turned into a kind of a one-person uh, transportation reporter in New York. His, um, his reporting is really quite good. His insights are fascinating. Um, he does approach it with a certain bias toward public transportation, and that 
in some ways is not the kind of thing that would necessarily have him writing stories for the New York Times. But his, his work on his site called Second Avenue Sagas is clearly a work of journalism and a very good work of journalism. And frankly, the kind of thing that would have been hard uh, for him to do in the pre-internet age because that barrier to entry, if you will, to the, the world of ideas was much higher. So that's the good side uh, of uh, our move to the internet. And that's when we talk about, you know, quote unquote, credentialed journalists or non-credentialed journalists, uh, I, I'm not sure that distinction is as, as sharp as, as some people might think. And again, to me, it's more about is what somebody doing credible? If it's really credible and good journalism, it's worth reading. I read KBAC stuff all the time because I'm interested in New York. I'm interested in its subway system and its transportation. And um, I think what he writes about is invaluable. Yeah, you, you tend to ask a lot of great questions that I've always wondered about. Like you had uh, interviewed... Um this uh at one point you interviewed somebody from dartmouth and you'd ask them in so many words why states can't operate on a deficit like the federal government i'm like that's what i've been wondering like for years now because it just seems like we depend too much <laughs> on the on the federal government's willingness to actually do so and uh yeah I, it's just like as i was doing my research i'm like these are all the questions i have <laughs> For various people well, in various it's, industries. It's the beauty of being a journalist, by the way, um, is is the license. I mean, uh, I get paid every day to simply ask questions that may pop into my head or that other people ask me. That particular question actually was one my wife had asked me at one point we were discussing this. And I, I sort of already knew the answer to that um, from previous reporting over the years. But, um, but nonetheless, the guy I was talking to who wrote a, a book called Naked Money, I think was the book. Um, I actually have interviewed him a couple of times now, and uh, he explains it, I think, pretty well um, as, as the difference between a, a government like the United States government that actually controls the value of its money and thus has the ability to deficit spend in a way that a state does not because it doesn't print its own money and it, it has to work with whatever it actually brings in. Yeah. Um, so. Which is the perfect way to answer it. Um, yeah. yeah, I agree. He answered it wonderfully. Um, let's see. What else do I have here? Oh, yeah. Could you um, go into the relationship between... So you, you, you talked a little bit about some of the local organizations up there. How... What is... How does their, the relationship work between them and the nationally rung organizations like NPR versus WNYC, um, NBC versus WCSH6? It varies a little bit. Um, in the public broadcasting system, um, national public radio um, and PBS are actually kind of collectives. Um, so their governing boards uh, are actually made up of, of officials from stations around the country. Um, so, but that's at the very, very high level. In terms of uh, news coverage, for us, um, we operate um, 
obviously we operate our own independent news operation. We have our local newscasts within NPR programs that we do. Uh, from time to time, NPR does use organizations like ours as an extension of their reporting crew. So we do file stories with the network all the time. In fact, you are bound to hear one of, uh, one of my colleagues tomorrow talking about this storm because NPR is in the process of looking for local reporting about this nor'easter and they're not going to send somebody up here to do a 60 second report not when we're already here um so they'll look for us to file for them and we will um so that's kind of the way that relationship works from time to time if we think we have a story that would interest them we actually pitch that to a regional editor and if npr is interested and they will begin to work with our reporter on a on a version of that story that can air on morning edition or all things considered or uh, uh, with the folks at WBUR who produce um, um, here and now the midday news program. Uh, for the television networks, uh, the television stations, I should say, I think the relationship is somewhat similar, although there, there, there's probably not as much local contribution to network broadcasts as there is on radio. Um, simply in the nature of the television networks, they have much larger staffs and just don't need to do that as much. Um, they also don't have as much many hours of programming necessarily to fill as NPR does. But, um, you know, from time to time, I'm, I'm sure that happens. The other thing that can happen sometimes now, <clears throat> and I saw that an example of this this morning, um, one of our TV stations here in Portland is, is an is owned by Sinclair Broadcasting, which owns a huge number of television stations across the country, more than anybody else. And um, and as a result, they had a report that I saw this morning here in Portland from a reporter for a station in Providence, uh, actually was in, it was in Rhode Island, and I'm, I'm blanking on exactly where it wasn't in Providence, but reporter for Providence television station who filed a story about the storm's impact there for the television station in Portland. That's something you can do, you know, because they're co-owned and, and it was and it was a nice way to flesh out your local news broadcast with something that's kind of regional, but not national, if you will. So where do organizations like the Associated Press come into the picture? Because, mm -hmm. you know, that uh, uh, in early November, the they were the most cited source of Biden winning Yep. the presidency well in part because they're they're still a very large and well-respected and, and reasonably well-funded news organization so they have the ability to do that um to to tap into the resources needed to make those kinds of calls the ap um, actually also operates as a collective it was created initially by uh newspapers way back as a way a more convenient way to exchange stories amongst themselves um, and they still do that. You know, you, the uh, AP Wire will still take a local story, kind of rewrite it and redistribute it to to the what we used to call, still call the Wire, and and make it available to other news organizations all across the country. Uh, they eventually uh, got into broadcast as well, and we actually are subscribers to the AP. Um, from time to time, they actually run some of our stories from Maine Public Radio. Excuse me. It's okay. Uh, assuming they're newsworthy enough, and they think it's something that their other clients around the state of Maine need to see. Um, 
So there, um, there used to be two m really major operations like that. The AP was one. The other one was a was not really an association per se, but it was a private company, United Press International, which actually still exists in some form, I believe. But over the years, um, as news budgets shrank in the 70s and 80s, um, UPI lost most of its customer base here in the United States. Um, so most news organizations still do tap into the AP because it is a way um, to have easy access to national stories. Um, but uh, that's, you know, that, that's it. Some of the major newspapers also have their own distribution services. I believe the Washington Post does. I think the New York Times does. Some newspapers will subscribe to those, <clears throat> giving them the ability to run some of their um, some of their material in the local newspapers. The Portland Press Herald runs material I know from the Washington Post service all the time. Oh, you know, I, I meant to ask this earlier. Do you have a hard out on this? Or oh, how no. long can you go? Oh, oh no. Did? Matter of fact, okay. I happened to be on vacation this week. Uh, so. <laughs> oh, okay. but, I, but it doesn't matter. My, my normal working schedule is usually about 4 a.m. to noon. So oh. this time of day, as long as I'm still awake, I'm good. Yeah, I'm usually like 2 p.m. to 3 a.m. <laughs> um, have you ever written or worked on a story that you thought was absolutely the most important? It was the most stellar reporting you've done where your editor and, and your editor was just like, mm, no, no, uh, uh nothing really that spectacular. <laughs> but I've had I've had stories that I wanted to do that they, that editors have said no, and you know you you get used to that. It's okay. I mean, <laughs> You know, it's uh, newsrooms are not usually democracies. They don't have to operate that. You know, it's not necessarily an efficient way to operate. So, if doesn't want to do something, it's like okay. What sort of data is used to determine not only the selection of stories but the order in which they're presented? So, like, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's it's that question of newsworthiness, really. Which you know, at the base level, is whether or not your story actually gets into publication or broadcast at all and then how much priority you give it there are a lot of factors that go into that and and it's and it's somewhat fluid the best way i can describe it and, uh, and organizations have different ways of determining this but <clears throat> you're looking for stories that either have great impact or are very interesting um, so, for instance, in Maine, I mean, when I talk to people about this, this issue, I say great impact is if one of our major electric utilities is going to raise rates by 10%. That's a big deal story on any given day because everybody has an electric bill to pay. And, you know, if the rates are going to go up by a significant amount, that's something everybody's going to want to know. Um, on the other hand, um, we also... Back in the, uh, in the late 70s and 80s, had a great story every spring about this harbor seal who was sort of adopted by this, uh, this fisherman um, down on, along the coast of Maine. And, and he used to spend, uh, because he was no longer, he sort of domesticated from a young seal pup. Um, in the wintertime, Harry would send him to the New England Aquarium in Boston to spend the winter and then they would release him every spring to come 
And every spring, because harbor seals know how to do this, they would he would swim from somewhere off the coast of Massachusetts back to the same harbor in Rockport um, to join with Harry for the summer. This was a great story. It would be top of the news for for days every spring as everybody waited to see if, if uh, Andre, as he was called, would make his swim up the coast. Now, does that story have great impact on people's lives? No. Is it very interesting? Yes, absolutely fascinating. Um, so those are two examples at the opposite extremes. So when you're talking about a story, you know, you, you want to look for that, that newsworthiness value. And how do you come upon it? It can be very organic, I think, and it, and it can vary. In part, you're judging the story against whatever else is going on that day. So on any given day, um, the most important story yeah, I mean, and unfortunately, right now, it's a little hard time to talk about this because, frankly, the two stories that have dominated news almost all year have been the pandemic and the presidential election. And maybe for a portion of the year, also the aftermath of George Floyd's killing and the national reckoning on race. There's really been nothing else that's come close. But in other years, that's not necessarily true. Um, so the stories that rise to the top will depend on the type of day you're having. You know, yeah. if, if there's a major disaster, that may lead the story, the news stories one day. Uh, this will lead a lot of newscasts up here tomorrow, um, along with the pandemic. Um, and that's something that wouldn't have been the case two days ago when the weather was not that extreme. And, you know, nobody really didn't really matter as much. So, um, yeah, and, and again, it, usually news organizations will have meetings of editors to debate this very question. What story is, is worth putting on page one? What story should we lead with? Um, should this story, in our case, we will often debate, does this story deserve a treatment of three or four minutes during one of our magazine news programs? Or as we sometimes say, is it only worthy of a few spots, 30 or 40 seconds in our newscasts? And again, depending on how many people are affected and or how interesting the story might be, will and whatever the diet of news is that day, we'll decide where things go. Yeah, it, it's, it's a very human medium. And mm -hmm. that's... Uh, yes, it is. I remember um, growing up, in the 90s uh, in Portland, you know, when the Air Med helicopter crashed, that made yes. front page headline news. Right. Uh, but then they also supplemented it with um, Slice of Life on the Bay. There used to be a guy who used to write weekly column about what it was like working as a deckhand on the ferry. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I tend to trust that type of balance. And so I just wanted to uh, touch touch upon some of that because... There, there, there is a lot of people who are mystified by um, those sort of lower stakes type articles, type, type reporting. But um, I think you explained it well. Uh, so thank you for that. I was um, going to say, I mean, the other thing, you know, look, I mean, um, your, your typical newspaper still includes comics and maybe a crossword. And again, it all comes down to the fact that you're trying to create a package that people are going to want to buy. So a certain amount of entertainment is going to be there as well as news coverage. But, you know, it, it's, it's, it's really, it's the kind of thing that's so um, foundational. People don't think about it much. 
but it's just true. Um, all of the news organizations that you listen to, again, public media perhaps being the one exception, are all existing as private companies in a free market. And their first and foremost job has to be to make enough money to operate. Um, you know, and until they can figure that out, nothing else is going to as a as a person who's worked in the public broadcasting sphere, do you think that there's a be- a bigger benefit to being a public company that depends on donations to to go versus you know the commercialization of the news? We think so. We think it. We think it offers us some marginal advantages. Um, you know, we have a certain amount of independence from from some of the commercial pressures. Um, the Although we don't get a lot of funding from the government, we do get some, and to the degree that we get some public funding, that takes a little pressure off our need necessarily to build an audience that's very high, although we actually do have an audience that is extremely high in this state. Um, uh, Public radio in Portland is generally the number one rated uh, radio uh, outlet, period, Um, which is terrific. But, you know, public radio was originally created in part to provide a platform for those things in the public sphere that might not be commercially viable. Um, and so we and we still have some programming that I think uh, is just that programming you just wouldn't find anywhere else because you couldn't make any money putting it on the air. But we have the time and we have the obligation to do just that. And we do. Great. Yeah. Um... How can we how can we get people to find you guys? <laughs> you know, I the one thing I want to do is find a way to say, hey, you know, to all the naysayers, there actually is really solid journalism out there. Like I think um, WNYC has some wonderful pieces, um, and they have also just good talk shows that I think are tackling subjects that nobody else is tackling. I think Brian Lair uh, is, is going uh, balls to the wall with a lot of things that nobody else is discussing in terms of like New York City legislation. One, one of the major problems that we have in the last couple of decades um, has been the fact that because the media landscape has expanded, thanks to the internet, the way it happens. People increasingly are being selective about their sources of information. And of course, some people are landing on sources of information that may be highly biased. What I tell people is that in this country, since we are a self-governing republic, there's no substitute for a well-informed citizen And being a well-informed citizen means to me, at least among other things, that you need to be uh, sourcing your news and information from a fairly broad collection of of outlets, be they newspapers, magazines, radio stations, TV, um, or the internet. And in some cases, it means perhaps um, paying attention to uh, people who have, or even using their ability to be on the internet, to be on the air, 
to espouse opinions diametrically opposed to yours. You need to hear them. You need to try to understand them so that you can then evaluate that versus what you may believe or others may believe and eventually come to some kind of uh, opinion of your own about which way we should go forward. And it's not necessarily an easy thing to do, but then again, I don't think uh, self-government is easy, um, at least not if it's going to be done well. And, and I, I'm, I tend to be a bit of an optimist and the optimist in me is hoping that what we're experiencing now is a result of the fact that really the last couple of decades, which is really what we're talking about, um, that that's still a relatively short period of time. And I just don't think the public has yet adapted to what life is like in this universe of so many different opinions um, that are expressed sometimes in the context of news. Um, I think eventually people will get there, um, but I think they need, I think we need more time to adapt, to mm -hmm. understand what's going on, to understand its strengths. And I think there are strengths um, and its deficits and, and respond accordingly. Um, but that, that's been my message to the public. People talk to me sometimes about, um, you know, hey, hey, they'll say to me, oh, we love you. You're our only source of news. And I say to them, well, you know, I appreciate that for the compliment that it is, but you really should sample some other sources too. That's part of what is being part of a, of a well-informed citizen. And I think it's really important that people do that. And in the end, to the degree that people are upset about the current trends in media, I, I really don't think there's much that we on the news media side, even those of us who are in the, you know, what we would consider members of credible news organizations are going to be able to do about it. It's yeah. really up to people. It's what, what they do in this landscape that's going to matter. If somebody asks, so like, let's say somebody says, oh, well, journalism is the fourth estate of democracy. And they say, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> How would you explain it? Um, uh, yeah, I don't remember the other three estates. It, was, it actually comes, if I remember, I was just reading it just a little while ago. I think the originator of that um, was, I think, uh, I think British or French, but it doesn't matter. Um, I mean, the, the fourth estate is, I mean, what they're referring to is, and it's been also referred to as kind of a, we're almost a separate branch of government, if you will, an additional check and balance. And we're not, and we're not really, of course, a branch of government or anything like that. But what is interesting is that we are essential watchdogs of government. Um, I mentioned before the studies that show where newspapers are disappearing from communities, corruption goes up. There's something else along those lines that um, actually gives me a lot of faith. Um, the, the First Amendment Center has for decades now conducted an annual survey on the First Amendment. And they get varying views of the First Amendment, which actually is a more controversial uh, part of our Bill of Rights than you might think, because, Bill, because it does encourage a lot of uh, 
uh, it does encourage a, a lot of things that people are not comfortable with. But the outfit has asked every year this question, do you believe that we need the press as a watchdog on government? And every year that they've asked that question without fail, roughly three quarters of the people who respond say yes. So Americans, I think, get it. The importance of journalism as a as an arm that kind of keeps its eye. That's not a good metaphor. But they, they get it that we are necessary to keep watch over the government that they choose to make sure that it's doing what they want. Um, so even though people sometimes complain about how we go about doing that, they, they understand in a foundational way the need for us to be performing that function. Is there, are there, um, would you be able to send me examples of your work that you, I, I would like to include some of your work that you think is your best work. Um, is there a way you could send that to me that I, I can include that? As, a couple of pieces. I, I probably can do that. Yeah. I mean, um, you know. I, uh, I really want to familiarize people with what we think good journalism is. And I'll, I'm also already going to include some of the winners. I, I watched the Sigma Delta Chai Awards video. Chai. Uh, Chai Awards. Yeah. Um, That's a really maybe, good source, actually. Yeah. Um, Go ahead and pick up some of those stories. Yeah, I was going to, like the South Portland one I didn't even know about. Uh, the, with the uh, gas, mm-hmm. um, and I, I'm also I also love this quote from that awards. Abby Phillips says, "You're not only writing the history of this nation, but you're also writing the history of journalism itself." And so that's why I want to include links to not only some of those, but anything that you would recommend from outside of this past year. Okay. Um, so we can. So I feel like part of the problem is there are not enough people reading this medium to recognize when it is good. And so maybe I'm wrong. I hope I am. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I, I, again, I think sometimes people get, um, I think really sometimes people get trapped um, at news organizations that are just talking about the things that they believe in. And that's not really what we want. We want to challenge your thinking from time to time. It doesn't have to be all the time, but, you know, sometimes it's a good thing to do um, so that you can either be assured that what you're thinking is correct or from time to time, perhaps you can let a little bit of doubt slip in there, which is very good for critical thinking, you know? Interesting, yeah. Critical thinking is, uh, I've been throwing that word around a lot lately. well, it's, the th- uh, it's the thing that I, I always say, it's the, it's the thing that I really learned in high school, was how to think critically. <clears throat> I had the great good fortune of being a student at the Bronx High School of Science. Um, and that was just, it was an outstanding experience. Outstanding. How did you get to me? Uh, it was where I, my, where I found my first job in radio. I mean, hmm. I was kind of looking all over the place and... For various reasons, I've wound up staying here. Yeah, I um, I should be uh, transparent about how I found you and decided to reach out to you. Is I was going down the list of everybody 
on the board of directors page uh, from the Society of Professional Journalists. You're the only one from my hometown that I could find. I'm like, oh, well, there's my ingress. Yep. <laughs> and uh, it's like we switched cities. Um, yeah. So. <laughs> Yeah, so. no, it's uh, and I and I like Portland. Uh, it's frankly, it's probably the only place in Maine I really want to be. But but it's it's great, and and frankly, the rest of the state is kind of a treat as well. I never I'd never set foot in this state until I came up here for my job interview in July of 1978, um, and I've since, of course, had the great good fortune to explore all sorts of places all the way up to all the way up to Fort Kent, which is about as far away from where I'm sitting now as Midtown Manhattan. Is that a rustic? Yep. Yeah. Rustic County. And uh, and it's and it is it is a great place. It's a great place of natural beauty. It's got it's got, you know, an interesting populace. Um, which by the way, I still see on a regular basis reading newspapers, which is always gives me great comfort. There's one thing I remember about living there is it was a fairly well-informed populace uh, mm -hmm. compared to other places that I've lived and visited. Um, and I actually, you know, when I moved away in 03, I moved, um, I didn't like Portland, but then when I visited it again over the past couple of years, I've liked it more and more. And I don't know, I, I don't know if it's changed or if I'm just getting into a different perspective. I'm, well, on the, I'm approaching 40, so. Well, it's certainly <laughs> developing. Um, there's been more physical development in the city of Portland uh, in the last decade than I've seen, period, since I've been here. Um, and amazingly, in spite of the pandemic, uh, many projects are just continuing to roll right along as if nothing has changed, which is sometimes I marvel at, but uh, nonetheless, um, it's still happening. And, um, and, and I think uh, it's the city has also changed in some other ways that are significant. It's become a more liberal place um, in the last 20, 30 years, um, to the degree that it's now quite liberal. Um, and it's become a little bit more diverse. I mean, there's not a lot of diversity in the state of Maine, but in Portland, there's a fair amount um, because this is the place where a lot of immigration has taken place. So. Yeah, I remember we uh, in high school, there was a really high population of Somali immigrants. Mm -hmm. um, yep. That really stood out because I never, when I left, I didn't see that anywhere else. Um, uh, interesting. Is, is Do you think, is the coronavirus numbers in Maine, was that low for most of the year? They were low for most of the, especially most of the summer. There was a, a brief spike in April, May, um, and then they got ridiculously low in the summer. And, you know, I mean, to the case, this, the state was adding like 20 or 30 cases a day statewide, which is really pretty good. Almost no one in the hospital. But um, in this fall, we've been swept up in the increase with everybody else. And since Thanksgiving, it's gone into the sky. Just today, uh, the number of cases the state added to its cumulative total is 590. And there have been nine more deaths. Most of the deaths now have occurred in the last month. Um, so, and I, you know, I don't know when that's going to turn around. Obviously, some of that was probably related to travel and gatherings people did right around Thanksgiving and now we're headed for Christmas and New Year's. Who knows? Yeah, I found in in New York um, 
things opened back up when the numbers went down. That's why I was curious about the numbers mm-hmm. because we were talking about how projects are still going on. And that's usually just an indicator that people don't see the death, don't experience the death. Um, interesting. Okay, so I think I got I got some good info here. Um, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Um, this was fun. I'll link to any work you send me. Otherwise, I'll just link to uh, Main Public Radio and uh, your page there. Uh, yeah. you know, um, <laughs> or, um, I mean, the other thing you might want to do, I mean, again, because you want to you want to show people examples of really good journalism, I would link them to to SBJ's site for the Sigma Delta Chi Awards, our professional okay. awards, um, and then people can kind of scroll through and find stuff there. Yeah, that's a great idea. I'll do that. Because I also like watching that. I realized, wow, they really break down the type of journalism, like yeah. down to the 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 details I wouldn't have even thought of. And so that's that's a perfect idea. Um, and I'll do that. And that'll be this will be the last episode of my podcast for this year. I'm going to go out on it. Uh, so I'm really excited about that. Well, Thank you very much. You're welcome. Enjoy Aaron. your holidays. Thank you, too. Bye. See you. Hey, everybody. That was my interview with Erwin Gratz on journalism. This is the last episode of the year, and I wanted it to be the last episode of the year because I wanted to create, I wanted to to go out from this year uh, responding to all of the uh, negative comments I've been seeing uh, on Twitter, but also from some of my podcasting peers about the state of journalism today. I think journalism is alive and well. And I just think that it's a matter of figuring out where to obtain the content. Irwin represents Maine Public Broadcasting, which is affiliated with NPR. I think NPR is a great place to go, um, especially if in if you're in New York or New England. Um, in New York, it's WNYC, which is one of my favorite radio news outlets. But I also think the gold standard for print journalism still is the New York Times. Um, and yeah, some, some publications write really ridiculous headlines. But as Irwin said earlier in the podcast, the headline doesn't always reflect the content of the piece. And a lot of times the headline isn't even written by the person who wrote the piece. So uh, take it all with a grain of salt. Uh, in terms of whether or not to judge a publication or judge a piece by its headline. It's like judging a book by its cover. Anyway, guys, I hope that you have a happy new year. I'll see you in 2021, first week of January. Going to have some great guests. Some A whole new approach to the show is in the works. Uh, and, I man, I'm so excited. I can't wait. Uh, in the meantime, if you're interested in supporting this podcast, I'm on Patreon. My Patreon now 100% supports this podcast. It used to be where like, oh, if you contribute to my Patreon, you're contributing to all of my artwork, my film work, as well as the podcast. I've now just geared it towards the podcast only as I want to go all in on this thing. Um, you can also use Anchor to, uh, to contribute and support this podcast. Uh, If you can, that would be great. Uh, If you can't, I totally understand. We live in hard times. But thanks, everybody. Happy New Year. See you in 2021. Eric, 